Good afternoon. My name is Brittany Brathwaite, and I am the Organizing and Innovation Manager at Girls for Gender Equity. Thank you for joining us for the School Girls Deserve Campaign press conference on Title IX and gender discrimination in New York City public schools. Thanks to the efforts of this city council, we are lucky to have strong protections for women and trans and gender nonconforming folks in the city at large. But our schools and the 1.1 million New Yorkers who attend them every day are being left out. Changes to our education system cannot wait any longer. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And today, we've got our senior producer, Abigail Keel, in the studio with us with some reporting to share. Hey, Abigail. Hey, y'all. All right, Abigail, tell us what you've been up to. It sounds like you uh, you actually left our, our podcast coven. I sure did. You guys let me out. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, I went to a rally, which is what you guys just heard at the top there, and it was hosted by an advocacy organization called Girls for Gender Equity. It was on the steps of City Hall in New York City, which is where I live, and that rally was all about an important piece of legislation called Title IX. And just FYI, for those of y'all who aren't familiar, Title IX is this federal law that prohibits gender discrimination in education. And for the past few years, though, it seems like we've been hearing a lot about it. Like in conversations about sexual assault on college campuses. We're talking about the interpretation of Title IX. That's the 1970s. And female sports teams seeking equal funding. Two female athletes sued, and the judge ruled the university was in violation of Title IX, meaning. And men's rights activists suing universities over women only scholarships. Yale and USC are under federal investigation for programs that are exclusively for women. In other words, this is not only an important law, but one with a lot of facets. Yeah. So we are zeroing in on one of those facets today that we rarely hear about. And honestly, I was surprised to learn about, even though it is so relevant to the ongoing Me Too movement. And that's sexual harassment in K-12 through schools. Right. And specifically, Title IX is the one law on the federal books that protects all students, kindergarten through college, from sexual harassment and violence, which is a major hurdle to education. Like, if you're being sexually harassed at school, it makes it a lot harder to learn. And guess what, y'all? According to the best research we could dig up, quote, sexual harassment is part of everyday life in middle and high schools. Yeah, exactly. And we as a culture are not really talking about that. In fact, a lot of school districts and, you know, the federal government kind of wish they didn't have to deal with Title IX at all. Here is that rally again. This press conference and subsequent hearing comes at a time when the United States Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, threatens to roll back Title IX, making it even more challenging for student survivors of sexual assault to come forward and pursue justice. 
Right. Right now, the Department of Education is essentially trying to make Title IX less powerful and protecting students from sex and gender discrimination at school. But the folks at Girls for Gender Equity are not going to go down quietly. No, they aren't. So today, with your help, Abigail, we're going to meet the passionate activists, both adult and teenage, who are trying to strengthen the enforcement of Title IX in K-12 schools. And we're going to learn the history of how Title IX came to be such a huge, important law to begin with. Because we want to know who and what is getting left out of the Title IX debates. My name is Hanisha Dunstan, and I'm a senior at John Dewey High School. My name is Amaya Williams, um, and I'm also a senior at John Dewey High School. So, Abigail, who are these students? And why are we hearing from them? Yeah. Okay, so these are two recently graduated high schoolers. I got connected with them through Girls for Gender Equity. They both participate in programming there. And I wanted to talk to some actual teens for this episode about Title IX. To be honest, Hanisha and Amaya were the only ones who volunteered, (laughs) which makes sense to me after meeting them because they are both major go-getters in school and outside of it. So I've started up a business for myself, Honey's Cosmetics with an X. Okay. And I sell like makeup, beauty, well, vegan makeup and beauty products and stuff. That's awesome. Where'd you learn to make them? YouTube. Okay. (laughs) And Google. Well, speaking of YouTube, I kind of like, um, I have an Instagram for my hair. So when I'm not in school... I like to, because a lot of people ask me questions about my hair, so I like to just make videos, like tutorials about that. And yeah, I have a YouTube channel coming. So yeah. <laughs> Love these teenpreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Hanisha and Amaya go to the same high school, but the group that they're a part of at GGE, the Young Women's Advisory Council, is made up of young people aged 12 to 24 from all across the city. It's almost like an after-school job. Um, they get paid a small stipend, they meet up, discuss different topics, and they actually advise the city on policy around those topics. This year, one of the topics they've been focusing on is Title IX and gender discrimination. And, you know, it's funny, Abigail, like when I was in high school, I had no idea that Title IX existed, that there was this like federal law that prohibited sex discrimination, that protected me as a high school student. Yeah, same. Me neither. And uh, did Amaya and Hanisha know about this? I mean, (laughs) I just like to assume that woke young girls know everything these days. (laughs) Well, not before they got involved with Girls for Gender Equity. I did not know anything. I've heard, I heard of it, but I didn't know exactly what it was or, like, how it affected us. So, yeah, I guess I didn't know anything either. And look, like, it does make sense that none of us really understood that Title IX applied to us in high school because it's not really talked about. And it's also a huge and very nebulous law. Yeah, Title IX doesn't involve a lot of words necessarily, <laughs> but it covers A lot. Right. Yes. So to help us all get on the same Title IX page, Kristen and Caroline, I think it's time for y'all to unpack some claptrap on where Title IX came from, how it got to high schools, and what it has to do with student sexual harassment. Then we're going to hear more from Amaya and Hanisha, along with some adult activists, about how Title IX is and isn't working for girls. Sounds like a plan. 
Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we comb through patriarchy's legalese and loopholes to find out why things are the way they are. So, you know, glass half full, our Title IX ignorance is partly due to its benefits that girls now, like, generally take for granted. So it's a given that public high schools can't just, like, stream girls into English classes and boys into calculus or, like, restrict girls' athletics to calisthenics and tumbling, which was totally (laughs) normal pre-Title IX. But glass half empty. Sports and college campus sexual assault dominate Title IX media coverage and activism, so it's protections for the most vulnerable students, young, pregnant, disabled, incarcerated, queer, kind of go unnoticed. Okay, so Caroline, there is so much we could talk about surrounding Title IX, but what we need to know for today's purposes is, one, where Title IX came from, two, how it got into high schools, And three, what it has to do with student sexual harassment. And all of that boils down to three major themes. Rejection, objection, connection. So first up, where did Title IX come from? Answer, from women who were fed the fuck up with sexist rejection, particularly in higher education. Exactly. So before Title IX, female college students were, like, routinely barred from stereotypically male majors like criminal justice and medicine. And they also often had to abide by campus curfews and couldn't stay out past midnight. And then in front of the classroom, more than 90% of professors were men. In other words, there was sexism up, down, and sideways (laughs) in higher ed. By the late 60s, all of this was really starting to piss off women like Bernice Resnick Sandler, a.k.a. Bunny, the godmother of Title IX. Yeah, Bunny got the whole Title IX ball rolling after she was turned down for what should have been like a shoe-in faculty job because she was told that she came on too strong for a woman. (laughs) But y'all, Bunny was an academic. She started researching how schools were getting away with that kind of blatant sexism, and she discovered two things. Number one, educational institutions could absolutely discriminate based on sex in hiring. Totally legal. But number two, if you were a federal contractor, like if your organization got money from the federal government, it was totally illegal. This is Bunny's eureka moment. So long story short, Bunny teams up with two women in Congress whose academic dreams had also been rejected. You've got Representative Edith Green, who had wanted to be an electrical engineer as a girl until her parents laughed it off and told her, quote, don't be silly. And Hawaii Representative Patsy Mink might not have ended up in politics if she hadn't been rejected by a dozen medical schools that just had zero interest in training lady doctors. And with a ton more organizing, legal research, and a week of congressional hearings, these women basically turned all that rejection into Title IX. So just a few years after Bunny was first bummed out about not landing that faculty job, President Nixon inks Title IX into law as part of this giant bill called the Education Amendments of 1972. Here's what Title IX says. 
No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That's it. That could fit in a tweet, Kristen. It, it could fit in a tweet, but what could not fit in a tweet is like what all that actually means in practice. Because like the law itself is sort of vague. But that was a good thing, ultimately, because, you know, Bunny's focus had been on hiring in higher education. But because the language of Title IX is a little nebulous, we've really been able to use it as a legal Swiss Army knife, not just for college, but also for K-12. through Which brings us to key point number two, objection. Yeah, so... I think the biggest thing that surprised me, Caroline, was just how long it took for Title IX to actually take effect. Because there was a lot of objection to it, like, right out of the gate, particularly from the NCAA and college coaches who were all like, oh, Title IX is going to bankrupt men's sports. And P.S. y'all. It didn't. (laughs) But our angry feminists did not take their eyes off that Title IX prize, Kristen. Angry feminists like Holly Knox. So in the late 70s, inspired by how this group of women got together to pass Title IX, she quit her government day job to found the Project on Equal Education Rights, or PEER. And Holly and Peer really led the charge to get Title IX enforced in K-12 schools. Which was an area that Bunny and her fellow Title Niners really didn't anticipate. Yeah, it was a whole other ball of bureaucratic wax, too, like compared to Title IX enforcement in higher education. Because today, we're talking about 50 million students in public K-12 schools, which is three times larger than, like, the college student population. Now, what was genius about PEER was its grassroots activism. Like, they used plain language to help parents and teachers understand what Title IX even meant and how sex stereotypes were embedded in kids' textbooks. And I also love, in 1978, how they weaponized SNARK and started handing out what they called Silver Snail Awards that highlighted just who was dragging their feet on Title IX. It was basically like the Razzies for school board members, superintendents, principals. So to answer the question of how Title IX got into high schools, it was really through this kind of public education. But Caroline, who did not deserve any Silver Snail Awards around the same time, were our feminist legal eagles of the day. They were busy making our key point number three, connection. Basically discovering just how much of a legal Swiss Army knife Title IX could be. Yes, and connecting with one another, but also connecting the dots between gender discrimination and sexual harassment. So in the late 70s, women at Yale University had begun talking more openly about these issues, like predatory professors and coaches and getting threats from administrators when they would try to report this kind of shady behavior happening. And in 1977, then-Yale law student Catherine McKinnon connects those dots between sexual harassment and Title IX, arguing that, yeah, sexual harassment definitely interferes with education. So McKinnon was like, uh, y'all, let's take Yale to court. And in 1980, their case, Alexander v. Yale, made it to the Supreme Court. 
And they ultimately lost. Uh, but the court did rule for the first time that sexual harassment indeed qualifies as sex discrimination. And since Title IX prohibits sex discrimination and sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination, that's why college campus sexual harassment and assault are dealt with as Title IX issues. What's wild, though, Caroline, is that under employment law, K-12 through schools actually have a stronger legal responsibility to respond to sexual harassment claims made by teachers and adults working in schools than they do to respond to students' claims of sexual harassment. And all this legal back and forth, like over sexual harassment, athletics, all of it, has really shaped Title IX's enforcement. And why it's taken so long to trickle down from higher ed into K-12 through schools, like, as opposed to more family-friendly issues like anti-bullying. Like, did y'all know that by 2015, every state had laws on the books requiring schools to establish clear-cut anti-bullying policies and complaint procedures? Well, and also just think about school shootings. Think about the fact that probably every public school student today knows what to do in case of some kind of active shooter situation. Like, they know where to go. However, like, when it comes to sexual harassment and what to do in those kinds of cases, it is completely vague. And like we mentioned earlier, sexual harassment is an unfortunately common part of the school day for way too many students. According to the latest research from the American Association of University Women, 56% of girls in 7th through 12th grade said they'd experienced some form of sexual harassment during the previous school year. And Caroline, thinking back on my own high school education, I am among that 56% for sure. And the thing is, like, these numbers include verbal and physical harassment, but increasingly... It also includes revenge porn-style pictures and videos that get circulated. And to get a sense of the scope of this issue, if we look just at sexual assault perpetrated by students on students, the Associated Press a couple years ago conducted this huge investigation and identified 17,000 official reports of sexual assaults by students over a four-year period from 2011 to 2015. When we come back, Abigail's going to introduce us to the bunnies of today who are hustling to empower students with the Title IX know-how and resources necessary to protect their civil right to safe, harassment-free schooling. Stick around. What do you wish that more people knew about Title IX in K-12 schooling? Um, I wish that people knew that it existed. We're back. And Abigail, who are you talking to here? This is Brittany Brathwaite. Brittany is the one who was welcoming us all to that rally at the top of the show. And I met up with her at the Girls for Gender Equity offices in Brooklyn after that rally to talk more about Title IX. Because Brittany is this super passionate activist, you guys. She has this energy about her where you can tell that young people like just cling, you know, and like really vibe with her. She just, she knows how to talk to them on their level. I use the gender pronouns her, she, like the chocolate bar. <laughs> Brittany has been at Girls for Gender Equity for six years. And a big part of the work she does is try to help people, both the community at large and the young folks that she works with, see Title IX in all its possible glory. 
because no one, even now, like t- almost two decades later, it's still a conversation about the importance of Title IX and K-12 and not just talking about sports. So, Abigail, how does GGE think about Title IX? Well, you know, it's actually always been a part of the mission of the organization. Interestingly, the founder, Joanne Smith, when she started GGE in 2000, was initially focusing on girls getting access to sports programs in schools, specifically girls of color in Brooklyn. She saw sports as like an opportunity for kids to really get ahead in school and wanted to make sure that girls had the same opportunities as boys. But it didn't take long for Joanne to realize that she needed a much broader focus for her organization. My explanation is like Title Title IX is a law that um, is working towards the vision of gender equity in schools, period. Um, and that means, you know, gender equity in sports means like if you get to play a sport, I get to play a sport. It means that if you are, if you're a young person who is pregnant or parenting, that like that is not something that prevents you from completing your education. Girls for Gender Equity wants to go beyond the original dreams of Title IX and work toward that vision of gender equity in schools, period. Which, you know, is a pretty broad mission, but they narrow in by specifically focusing on girls of color and trans and gender nonconforming youth. Because they believe that centering the voices of those at the margins is key. It's also important to note that female students with disabilities are, I believe, at the highest risk of experiencing sexual harassment and assault in schools. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, this is a super important issue. But to be honest with you guys, going into this story, I was kind of confused about why protecting students from sexual assault and harassment was part of our education law. Brittany, though, connected the dots for me in a really helpful way because she explained that basically acts of gender discrimination result in girls leaving school. We are in the movement to end what we call school pushout. We have framed these things as dropout, Mm -hmm. as if young people just walk out and be like, I'm done with school, like, won't come back tomorrow, right? Young people who become pregnant um, or are parenting, um, if they were provided with the resources like daycare, if they were provided with, you know, extra time, tutoring, could they have remained in school? Probably yes. So they didn't drop out of school. There's a bigger, larger factor of policies that push them out. You know, we know that Title IX is a thing that schools are supposed to do. It's on paper, has been for a long time, um, and that schools, regardless of where they are in the country, if they receive any type of federal funds, are supposed to abide by what's written. Yeah, they're supposed to abide by what's written. That's the key here. So look, in an ideal world, if something happened at school between two students or a student and a teacher, then that kid would be able to report it. They would take it to their Title IX coordinator, who would then investigate. And the school ideally would believe them, take it seriously, make sure that disciplinary action could be taken against the perpetrator, sure, but also, you know, take protective action on behalf of the victim. Like, make sure that they're not in classes with the person who harassed them. Okay, but you use the words ideal world, (laughs) Abigail, so what, what actually happens? What actually happens is that schools have a lot going on, and they kind of try their best not to get involved or be proactive in any way. Um, A lot of times they are embarrassed when stuff like this happens. They don't want parents and community members to even know. They don't want it to be publicized. So it's just easier to push things under the rug. And this is all assuming that students even report harassment that happens to them at school, which Girls for Gender Equity ran, like, this sort of focus group of girls and young people. And what they found was that students did not even know 
who they could tell if something happened to them at school. Young people didn't know who their Title IX coordinator was. And so we had like one in three young people reporting that they had experienced sexual harassment. And most of them, like upwards of 90, 90% did not know like who to report it to um, if there was, you know, if something needs to be reported. And so, you know, we went back, we did the work and we found out that New York City, where we are located, has one Title IX coordinator for 1,800 schools and 1.1 million students. You know, we have one to 1.1 million. There's no way, you know. New York has one Title IX coordinator. One Title IX coordinator. And it's their full-time job. No. (laughs) No? No. Oh, my gosh. That person also has other roles and other responsibilities. We already demand so much of teachers and do not pay them enough. I mean, honestly, it's kind of no surprise that schools often take such a hands-off approach with these issues. Yeah, and I will just tell you that a lot of times it's not a teacher who is the Title IX coordinator for a school district. It's oftentimes an administrator or some other person in the district, sometimes even the superintendent. And that can create a true conflict of interest between, you know, what that person is trying to do in terms of, like, promoting their school and (laughs) saving their school money and all these other kinds of things and like actually taking these investigations seriously and wanting to get to the bottom of some pretty disturbing stuff that can go down. So it's just um, a real mess. Yeah, not to mention uh, that might be sort of an intimidating appointment to make if you're a student (laughs) needing to just, you know, uh, have the superintendent pencil you in. Right. And you have to be able to identify that what's happening to you is, you know, assault, which I don't know that every sixth grader can do that. But I will say (laughs) that GGE, um, you know, is hoping that one day we can get there. Uh, And that's kind of what that rally from the top of the show was about. All right. We're going to get started. So, yeah, this was a press conference and rally that took place back at the end of April, where Girls for Gender Equity was asking the city of New York to budget more money and hire more Title IX coordinators for the school district. The Department of Education to hire at least seven full-time trained Title IX coordinators in each of the borough citywide offices. We must increase Title IX coordinators now. Full-time trained Title IX coordinators so that me and my friends and all students can feel safe from sexual harassment and gender discrimination at schools. Thank you for having me. So I think that's like a great ask, but will they just be coordinators in name only, kind of like that superintendent example? Like, are they just going to add layers of bureaucracy or are they actually going to be able to help the students? That is a fair question. And the reality is, I don't really know. But Title IX coordinators are the one thing that activists can ask for because it's required that every school district have one. So it's kind of like the way to get a foot in the door. And to be honest, almost anything is better than what we have right now. We've talked to teachers that have no idea what that is. Principals, no idea. They learn about Title IX from us. That is not okay. No, no. That is not okay. Like, people who run schools potentially do not understand Title IX. Yeah, honestly, I don't think there's any excuse for that. But Girls for Gender Equity is truly hoping that more coordinators could come in They could be the people who truly understand what's going on. They could explain it to all the people who work in schools. And, you know, that that could really be like the start to a more cultural change. 
it's not an easy job, right? It's never going to be an easy job, but it has to be someone's job. So we see the, we're thinking of one of the ways to strengthen Title IX is to actually have people who work on it. The way that Title IX works is if you don't do it, you lose your money, right? But you don't get any money for doing it. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so there's not like a pot, and, ha- and who who's like tattling on you that you're not doing it? Yeah, who? so yeah. like the community has to know that you're in violation of something. They have to be able to have the willpower, the access, the resources to file some kind of claim at the federal government. They have to tell on the federal government and say, "Hey, you're doing this thing." I mean, I think that's what happened in Chicago. They did. Okay, yeah. So in Chicago, this this is like the best example we've got in terms of like a change taking place. So last year there was this huge sexual abuse scandal in the Chicago public schools, and the federal government held back funding until the school district addressed the issue. So they ended up establishing an Office of Student Protections, and they plan to hire 20 Title IX coordinators who will be in charge of investigating civil rights complaints inside the district. And, you know, we also saw something like this happen under the Obama administration on the college level a few years ago. After campus sexual assault became a national headline, the government was basically like, yo, colleges, get your shit together. And schools established Title IX offices and hired coordinators to take this stuff seriously. And it's sad that we have to, like, you know, we have to fund safety. But it's not like we're like, here's here's money to go create positive environments where all young people can succeed and grow and one day, you know, take over the world and change it as we know it. No, that's not the thing. That's not where that's not the world we live in. Okay, now this might be (laughs) this might be a stupid question, but why isn't that the world that students live in when they go to school? Yeah, I don't think that's a stupid question at all. I think that's like a super, super important question. And I talked about this with Brittany. uh, And here is her answer. People really don't think that sexual violence happens to young people, right? And so we can have lots of um, conversations about sexual harassment in the workplace. And we do have protections in some ways for sexual harassment in the workplace. In terms of schools, schools are the workplaces of young people, right? They and, and they are mandated to go there, right? There is not a choice. You can't just quit and work from your sofa or work from home. If you do not go to school, you get in trouble or your parents get in trouble, right? Yeah, It's striking to me that there are so many, um, I mean, if I think about like successful campaigns in high schools, I think about um, anti-bullying. Why do you think that we don't talk about sexual harassment and name it when we talk about bullying? Well, I think, so I think several things. I think um, sexual harassment is one of those things that like, especially inside of schools, it's like, it's the one elephant in the room where you have to actually bring an entire community to the table and say, we got a problem. Um, and it's not just the, the onus isn't on children. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think anti-bullying could say that, like, you're the bully. We could point out to one. And sexual harassment, everybody, everybody, everyone is complicit in the culture. Um, that that um, en- enables sexual violence to be present. Mm-hmm. And so we would need to actually make that distinction and say it every single day. Yeah. And that's something we got to be willing to do. Abigail, it just kind of feels like adults refuse to look at the root of the problem here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is exactly what's happening. It's like we're very uncomfortable as a cult. Or, or honestly, like we're just now being comfortable as a culture acknowledging what happens to adult women every day. And it's like 
the next hurdle, I think, is acknowledging that it doesn't just happen to adults. Like, it's not only on college campuses. It's also inside of our schools where we send kids of all ages every day, all day. Like, sexual assault, harassment, and discrimination happens there, too. Yeah, I can I can totally understand the... It seems like there's an impulse to want to protect children mm-hmm. from, you know, being sexualized, but it's to the point that it kind of backfires to where, like, w- we aren't even giving them the tools that they deserve, honestly, to be able to navigate the sexualized situations that are happening in schools. Because guess what? Our culture is sexualized and schools do not exist on some magical island separate from our culture. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And we're going to take a little break. But when we come back, we'll talk to Hanisha and Amaya about gender discrimination in their high school and how they think Title IX can help. And what we can all do to move Title IX forward. We're back. And Caroline, I'm so excited because you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time to talk to the teens. Teen time. What were you up to this weekend? Sleeping. (laughs) Online shopping, looking for prom stuff. Oh, when's prom? Next week. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow. Abigail, are you suddenly trying to shift the topic of this conversation (laughs) from Title IX to prom? Yeah, this is now an episode about prom. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I'll I'll write the course. Back back to Title (laughs) IX. So Title IX, you know, bans all discrimination on the basis of sex and gender. Are there particular forms of discrimination that, you know, seem to really stick out to Hanisha and Amaya? Yeah, I was really excited to ask them this because I just wanted to know, like, from a teen's perspective, like, what, (laughs) like, matters to them on a day-to-day basis at school. So we talked about it, and they listed a couple things. One was kind of, like, sports stuff. When they announce um, wins of the sports team, they always say the male teams first, or they always broadcast the male teams over the women's teams. And sometimes the coach, like, the women's team's coach has to go to the main office and tell them, hey, my girls did this or whatever. Mm. And so then it's being told at later in the day when nobody's listening or when everyone is already out of school already. So it's like the morning announcements, and they're mm-hmm. like, last night the boys' basketball team won mm-hmm. or whatever. Not even they, they, <laughs> they don't win. No offense to anybody, but yeah. <laughs> Much offense, they suck. <laughs> now, I want to be clear here that like announcing the boys' sports team on the PA and not the girls is not illegal. Um, it's not even a violation of Title IX, exactly. But it and other small ways that Hanisha and Amaya identified gender discrimination happening in their school, like, you know, teachers calling on boys' students more than girls and that kind of stuff, can contribute to an inequitable learning environment. And according to Title IX, that is not okay. And and schools should be working to change it. Um, the one other area that Hanisha and Amaya identified where people of different genders are treated differently at school is the dress code. That's like the most obvious thing you can think of when you hear like gender discrimination because mm-hmm. in most schools, um, girls are always targeted when it comes to like um, dress codes and whatnot. 
there's like a whole list of what they cannot wear or cannot do. But for guys, it's like no wife beaters, something simple. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, yeah, I think that's the first thing that pops into my head when I think of like gender discrimination. And what is your dress code? Or do you even know like what they the have rules it plastered right outside when you're walking into school and when you go through scan and it's like no tank tops, no shorts, no flip flops. Most of them is just targeted towards girls. Mm. Probably the only thing that's targeted towards the males are no hats, do rags, mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, how does it make you feel to know that like there are rules that apply to you because of your gender it feels really weird when you think about it because it's like they're so focused on what you're wearing and how your body looks like I, it's odd like to me I, I don't really follow the rules I'm not not in it's like <laughs> I'm just rule breaker but like I'm not gonna because what do you, what are they gonna say if I come into school with shorts like you can't wear that I ask why is does it do I make you uncomfortable like what is the problem so it just makes me feel odd that they're focused so much on how young girls their bodies look in school when they should be focused on teaching us or like you know, enriching our minds, you know? Yeah, I feel the same way. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. And then it makes me feel uncomfortable because I had, like, situations that happened with some of the female staff when they made comments towards me. And then they, when I reported them, they claimed it was just protecting me or whatever. But that has nothing to do with my education. Like, the way I dress has nothing to do with my education. It's not like I'm walking through the school naked or anything. I have on clothes. Uh, so Hanisha is talking um, about an incident that happened to her at school recently where um, she was wearing something and uh, staff in the lunchroom sort of like started talking to her about it. Like I don't wear bras and so I forgot I was wearing like a regular shirt or whatever and she was like, oh, you know, if you don't wear bras, your tits are going to sag to the floor or something like that. And then the other one, when I was walking past by her, she was like, oh, another one without a bra. And then she was discussing me to another student while I was leaving the cafeteria. Hanisha was, like, very um, upset about this. Like, it just didn't make her feel good to feel like adults in the school were discussing her body, especially, like, that part of her body. She, like, got her family involved. It kind of went up to the dean of students. But he he ended up just kind of telling her, like, don't worry about it. You're fine. Which, you know, it's true. <laughs> she is. But also, like, why are adults in a school commenting on a student not wearing a bra? Like, why? Oh, I think it stems back to... Kind of, I think you can um, you can bring that back to victim blaming, kind of, because they look at it as if you're dressed a certain way, then you're just asking for something to happen. So they look at it as they're protecting us from whatever happening. But 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 honestly, people who commit sexual crimes, they're going to do it no matter what you're wearing. So it's not about the victim; it's about the perpetrator. So I think mm -hmm. they should focus more on the perpetrator because there's a lot of them. That they just sweep it under the rug because... And then say boys will be boys. Exactly. Like, no, that's a criminal. Exactly. Mm. These girls are talking about what's going on in school where they're supposed to learn. And this is the education, the mm. real world education that they're getting. The whole boys will be boys situation. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think the dress code stuff is a huge issue. And Girls for Gender Equity does a lot of work on it. Again, it's a way that schools treat students of different genders, not to mention classes and faiths and 
a lot of other things differently. There is no standardization. And the way that dress codes are enforced can impact a student's ability to access their education. It's like, you know, they might get sent home for what they're wearing or not be able to go to class. Brittany even told me about an example of a girl who she's worked with who um, an administrator at her school put pieces of cardboard in this student's pants because the holes in her jeans were too, quote-unquote, disruptive. And putting cardboards, cardboard mm-hmm. in pants is not disruptive. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if the these dress code examples might seem like uh, really benign instances, but in reality— it, it is conditioning girls to kind of accept that they will be treated differently, to accept that their bodies are liabilities and distractions, um, and not to mention detracting from their overall education. Yeah, and get the message that as a distraction, clearly the boys' educations are more important than theirs. Mm-hmm. Which is why Girls for Gender Equity meets young people where they're at and tries to actually educate them, in addition to, you know, calling for bigger policy changes. Because students in high school and younger have ideas for solutions, too. Why do you think that people should care about Title IX in, uh, like, the high school level and younger? I mean, I feel like it's in human nature to care about the well-being of others. I agree. I feel like... um it's important for like not just uh, like older students to understand, but younger students too, because I feel like learning starts from a, a young age. So if we're teaching younger students what should and shouldn't happen in regards to like um, Title IX and what's that surround, what surrounds that, then I feel like um, that would solve many problems before they even started. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it would like be prevent exactly, yeah. Amaya and Hanisha are both headed off to college this fall. Oh, congrats. Yeah, Amaya is headed up to Albany, and Hanisha is going to Pace University here in New York. They both said that they want to keep being active on these issues. And can I just say, like, that's awesome. <laughs> even, even knowing that these two students have the language to describe what they think is happening in their schools is not good enough is, you know, very inspiring to me. Well, and it's also inspiring because this is how it ought to be. The Mm -hmm. fact that we often wait to educate young women about Title IX until they are on college campuses feels like it's way too late. And so it is exciting to hear from teens who are learning that early on. And also exciting to hear some good news about all of this work that they've been putting in actually paying off for the New York City School District. Yeah, that's right. So New York City did just approve the budget to hire seven full-time Title IX coordinators. It's all thanks to GGE's advocacy work. And it's one, like, kind of teeny tiny, but also momentous and huge and amazing win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's also proof to me that if there is enough of a call from students and parents and a community for school districts to enforce Title IX, you know, whether by hiring more coordinators or maybe there's another Swiss Army knife thing out there that we can all dream up, then they will have no choice but to listen. Also, uh, from the claptrap, we learned that this is also the way that Title IX yeah. was enforced to begin with from the jump. It's taken this kind of grassroots activism. Yeah, and so how do we keep that going? Well, Brittany says it's all about getting people inside and outside of schools to care. Cough, cough, cough. That's all of us. 
And so, like, one, encouraging regular, regular people, like, everyday people to figure out what's happening in your school community. Everybody cares about kids, right? But, like, do you care about kids in this way? Like, I need it to be in the front of your mind that, like, rampant gender inequity is occurring. That is my hope that people, you know, educate themselves and learn and feel as, you know, outraged about this as we do for adults. Um, it's not something we can we can wait for. Everybody has to be a part of that. And all of you can be a part of that. We will have a ton of resources about Title IX on our website. There are all kinds of amazing programs across the country to help high school students know their Title IX rights. Uh, So definitely check that out. Get involved. Ask what your schools are doing in your community. And uh, don't be afraid to show up at a rally. (laughs) Well, thank you, Abigail. I know. Thanks for reporting for us. You're welcome. It's such an important issue. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was uh, at times depressing and at times very uh, enlightening and exciting. So uh, that's the story of Title IX (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the story of women. (laughs) Okay, y'all, head on over to our private Facebook group and share your thoughts. We've got a thread in there about this episode, so join the conversation. And students and educators especially, we would love to hear from y'all about what's happening with Title IX in your schools. You can also email us at hello at unladylike.co or find us on all the socials at unladylike media. Y'all can check out all of our sources and resources from this episode over at unladylike.co. And while you're there, you can grab some Unladylike merch and sign up for our newsletter where you'll get actually good news about women in the world delivered every Wednesday. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. A huge special thanks to Morgan Fletcher at Girls for Gender Equity, along with Bill Howe, Danielle Bostic, Alexandra Brodsky, and Shawali Patel from the National Women's Law Center. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week, we are switching gears. When I was finishing my MFA in creative writing, I was applying for these jobs that were like for shit money. And I'm looking at what I had done in phone sex and sex work, and I'm like, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to keep doing sex work and phone sex. And look where I landed. Now I'm the CEO of this bitch. That's right, y'all. We're talking about the business of phone sex. Ring, ring, hello. And also, don't forget, we have an entire full album of pep talks waiting for you on Stitcher Premium. So head on over to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike to get a month of free listening. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. That's us. It's our new tagline. That's us. (laughs) Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here. And there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. 
What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, right. worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.